All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. How's everyone doing? I hope it's all good wherever you are in the world. I have no complaints here in anywhere USA. The Hollywood Blitz is upon us, from the holiday parties to white elephants and everything in between. Yeah, like, did you hear that sigh? That's how I really feel, because it's, like, literally a blitz the whole month. Like, for the last, hell, since October, because of Halloween. If we're being honest with each other, right? Anyways, there's a lot of hustle and bustle, so if you haven't already, be sure to join the What Had Happened Facebook group, where I share true crime memes, true crime stories, and podcast updates. The community is growing, and I'd love to see more interaction. Come on, guys, like, talk amongst yourselves. There's also the What Had Happened YouTube channel, website, Instagram and Twitter, as well as an email address where you can email me about true crime stories you're interested in hearing me discuss, or just to say, hey girl, hey, you know, long time listener, first time emailer, whatevs, just keep it clean. All of those links can be found below in the description box, along with my references per the usual. Now I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you, you're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you, this is your shout out time. What's good? Albany, New York City, the Bronx, and Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for listening. Seattle, Bellingham, Everest, and Pulspo, Washington. Hey, Chicago, Libertyville, Elgin, and Schaumburg, Illinois. What's poppin'? Jacksonville, Pinellas Park, Largo, and Orlando, Florida. Victoria, Queensland, and Tasmania. Hi, all. Ontario, Alberta, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, thanks for listening. Bavaria, Germany, welcome, welcome, welcome. And oh my goodness, thank you so much for tuning in. Auckland, Canterbury, and Wellington, New Zealand. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Last episode, I discussed six murders within the music world. Today, I'll be taking you to the wilds of Big Sky Country to tell you what had happened when a killer experienced the scientific method. What had happened to the Missoula mauler, Wayne Nance? Here comes your quick facts about Montana and Missoula. So, Montana, known as Big Sky Country and the Treasure State, is the third least populated state in the United States. After Billings, Missoula is the second largest city in Montana. The western Montana city of Missoula is known as the Garden City, River City, and Zoo Town. A 2020 census put the population of the city and metropolitan area at 191,411 residents. Missoula is home to the University of Montana. I highly recommend learning more about Montana. It's a fascinating place. Okay, so I read To Kill and Kill Again by John Coston as a reference. The book was an extremely difficult read, to say the least. It was 358 pages, and it was quite a bit to parse through. This book is... Yeah, um, so it doesn't go in sequence. I'm really trying to pick 
my words here. <clears throat> Even though I'm reading from the script and I did choose my words. But again, so the book was really difficult to go and sequence. So I had to skip around like it was a choose your adventure to find the information I wanted and needed. I also had technical issues with the first digital copy of the book I had. Like literally, so like I would read like a couple of pages and then I would turn the page and then it would be like half the page would be cut off and then the other half of like the next page would be on there and it was a cluster and so like I scrambled went over to my google play books and rented the book so also there's a section of this book that implied that Wayne Nance was responsible for the February 5th, 1974 abduction and murder of five-year-old Siobhan McGinnis. However, in October 2000, or, yeah, 2020, it was revealed after 26 years that her murder was, uh, well, it was more than, it was 46 years, I'm sorry. After 46 years, that she was murdered by Richard William Davis, who is deceased. So, check out that story if you're interested. Um, check out the book if you're interested. Again, like I said, I needed to put that out there right now because this book is a little bit older and the author really, like, tried to put Wayne Dance, you know, he tried to tie the two together or it was just whatever. And it was 358 pages, you guys. Like, as I said, like, I really wish they had a cliff notes on this, but fortunately for me, it was broken down into parts, and then within each part, there were chapters, so I could go by, like, the chapter titles to kind of figure out which ones had the information that I need. Needless to say, I had to go to, like, part two to find out the information I need about this guy, so that's my little rant ski, gonna take a couple sips off the tea, bird is a little horse, uh, you know, talking a lot. Oh, kills your voice. Lame. So, I guess I'll start by telling you there's going to be, like, a whole lot of triggers. Absolute positive fucking tube. Don't listen to this around the kids. You know me. You know my voice. You know what I say. Really graphic shit. There's going to be some triggery shit. Um, if you are about that animal life. Ugh abuse towards women a lot of fucked up shit okay there you have it that's your disclaimer so okay <sighs> on december 28th 1952 george edwin nance 24 years old married 16 year old charlene may Mackey. eight months later the couple welcomed their first child a girl they named desiree two years later on October 18, 1955, their first son, Wayne Nathan Nance, was born. A second son, who was named William, was born in 1960, and a second daughter after that was born in 1962, named Veta. Occupationally, George Nance was a truck driver, while his wife Charlene, a waitress. For the better part of a decade, the family lived in the Elmar Trailer Park located on the northwestern outskirts of Missoula. 
Elmar consisted of 50 home lots, each abutted to a paved street, which at the time was the only trailer park in Missoula with paved streets. The farm, or the owners and operators of the trailer park, Elmer and March Frame, proud of, oops, that was my phone, ha sorry, <clears throat> were proud of the community that they built carefully, and they screened and interviewed every potential new occupant of Elmar. Sorry if you hear intermittent creaks, it's my chair. The, frame thro- the frames throughout are thought that the young, growing family would be a good fit for the community. So, you know, they allowed the Nances to move in. As a child, Wayne, a red-headed little boy with freckles, was described as being sadistic. At eight, while on the school bus, for instance, classmate Julie Frame dropped her glasses, they were brand new, and watched them fall to the floor on the moving bus. Wayne picked up the frames, and Julie knew Wayne was going to break them before he even followed through. Just as she knew he would, Wayne held up the girl's new plastic frames and snapped them in half, tossing them at her. Upset, Julie told her mother and father about the incident. When Julie's father confronted George Nance about his son's bullying and and destruction of his daughter's glasses, George was said to have given a cavalier, Aw, come on, Elmer, boys will be boys. What do you expect from an eight-year-old boy? response. Julie's parents didn't have an immediate response to that, as they had daughters, but they did know that the other boys in the Elmar trailer park, Elmer and Marge Frame, operated didn't behave like Wayne. So, like, keep that in mind. Like, I mean, I'm a girl mom. I'm never gonna pretend to know what it's like to have, like, sons, but yeah, there's things, like, if you think something's wrong, mm, I'm not trying to probably is. Anywho. So, huh. As Marge watched Wayne play cowboys and Indians with the other children in the park, she observed there was something of a mean streak in the ginger type. It nagged at Marge, but she tried to dismiss it as him being a little boy. What also didn't sit well with her was George always explaining away Wayne's bad behavior, claiming, for instance, like it was Julie's fault. George would accuse Julie of picking on Wayne because her parents owned the trailer park they all resided in. So this is like your first... Huh... This is it. Alrighty, this is your first trigger alert. Dumpster juice alert. (sighs) On one occasion before the Nances moved away from Elmar, Elmer himself had finally witnessed a truly horrific scene at the hands of young Wayne. So, it's like, let me paint the picture for you. It's winter. And there was a litter of kittens that were just born, and they were inside of a cardboard box, 
in front of an incinerator that was outside. Now, Elmer was doing the chores around the park, and he was also taking care of these kittens, okay? Now, I'm going off the script. I'm telling you from what I read, okay? So, he, he, it was a cold, he said it was a bone-chilling cold day. He positioned the box of kittens in front of the incinerator, like, on the, on the ground, for warmth. And, of course, the incinerator door was closed, but, you you know, because it's hot on the inside, it's going to radiate the heat, and it's going to keep the kittens warm while he's, you know, doing his chores. So, at some point, Elmer saw Wayne, but Wayne didn't see him, or he thinks that Wayne didn't see him. He said that he casually strolled over to the box in front of the incinerator. Curious, the boy looked into the box, and after seeing the contents, because he opened it, looked inside of the box, he opened the door to the incinerator and tossed the box of kittens in. Mortified and shocked, at first, Elmer contemplated like even telling Marge. Like, he wasn't even going to tell his wife. But he decided otherwise. Maybe boys do that, Marge questioned her husband, but maybe he has a sadistic streak. The frames couldn't understand why Wayne was so different if George, Charlene, and the family overall were so quote-unquote normal. While the frames liked the Nances in general, they weren't misty-eyed to see them move onto greener pastures at the Tamarack Court Trailer Park in an unincorporated part of the county. Wayne was an exceptionally smart boy who read a lot. Wayne had a vast knowledge about sex, and if his peers had questions about the taboo subject, he always had an answer. Sounds like Rasputin. Mm. The boy had a temper and would constantly get into trouble. On one occasion, Wayne was kicked off the school bus for fighting. When George inquired with the principal as to why Wayne had to be kicked off and essentially suspended from riding, it was explained that Wayne had been in a few fights on the bus and that an alternative tra- and that alternative transportation was going to be needed temporarily. George threatened to put Wayne on the bus himself the following morning, and he also said that the principal better have his, like, took us on the bus as well, so basically he could kick his ass, right? Because you don't tell me what to do, and you don't, you know, you don't stop my kid from going to school. So, sure enough, the next morning, George was waiting for the bus with Wayne in tow. George asked if the principal rode along on the bus, and the driver said, no. There was a tense moment. They had like a stir off. <laughs> and the bus driver had his hand on the lever so he could like close the door like before George could like basically toss Wayne's little ass on the bus essentially. But George thought better than to cause any further scene and drove Wayne to school. Later that day, Wayne told his bus driver slash custodian, Mr. Otto, My dad told me, you gotta get them before they get you. That's my motto. The kid was a menace, and his dad was a live wire. 
December 14th, 1968, and I totally, like, condensed this. George was captured and arrested for a botched robbery and assault on a manager at a -a save-a-lot. George was convicted and sent away for five years. Wayne was 13 years old. In spite of the unfortunate home life, Wayne had his teachers and and his principal had no doubts that Wayne could still come out okay and that the young man still had a bright future ahead of him. They were all hopeful that he would outgrow the troublesome behavior he had been exhibiting throughout his young life. A year and a half into his five-year sentence, George was released on parole. Eleven days before graduation from grammar school into high school in 1970, Wayne, who by now was a deceptively built young man, like his biceps when flexed on his thin frame were the size of cantaloupes, that packed a hell of a punch. Wayne picked a random target, promising to punch him every day for the next eleven days. So... Wayne, out of nowhere, stopped after the second day. It's now the 70s, and, like, the local, younger community, like, basically the university students and stuff like that, they were all in in, an unrest about the Vietnam War, and oh, so many, like, I mean, this is obviously going on across the country, but, you know, like, everywhere else, they were pissed And the vibes are thick and heavy. You know, the older people, I don't know, probably were like, what the hell is wrong with these kids? Who knows? But, you know, the youth are more expressive with their creativity and thoughts and experimentation with all sorts of things. For instance, the occult. In Wayne's junior year, everyone around him began to notice that he was becoming obsessed with discussing black magic, dark spirits, these are words from the book, okay? I'm not conjuring anything. And things uh, of that need of the occult nature. While he was still excelling in, you know, all of his classes, he was annoying his classmates with his tales of sorcery, witchcraft, and the dark side. He once told a classmate he had a dream he visited the dark side and encountered a queen who presented him with a gift. Wayne then showed his classmate a gold pentagram. After telling Wayne he was full of it, Wayne continued stating that the queen ordained him a third-degree witch and his goal was to become a warlock. Wayne said he was progressing and and was in a coven. Wayne immersed himself, familiarizing himself with the verbiage, practices, and observances, even going so far as changing his birthday of October 18th to Halloween, October 31st, which is like a high holy uh, holiday in witchcraft, uh, per the book, the way that it was worded and whatever. Along with witchcraft, Wayne also took an interest in the Vikings. While learning about the shipbuilders of Scandinavia and pirates in the medieval ages in a history class his senior year, Wayne and his friend Nick executed a mock burial at sea 
torching some homecoming floats in the fairground lot across from Taco John's. Woot. When the two told two other boys what they did, they didn't believe them until they read about it in the newspaper the next day. Wayne was telling everyone that he followed Odin, the Norse god of wisdom, poetry, death, divination, and magic, while also taking an extreme interest still in all things occult, which included for him a fascination with Satanism as well as witchcraft. And he was taking bits and pieces of the three to like make his own to to make his own like interpretation of like what his own beliefs were like to create his own explanation I don't know so for me okay and this was my sidebar that I actually put in the script I understand being curious and wanting to find something that aligned with how he was feeling on the inside and what he believed. I think it was a bit over the top personally, you know, picking from and and it was like it was all at once. It was simultaneously he was into saying that he followed Odin he was a third degree witch as well as reading Anton LaVey's book on Satanism and following some of the practices within that book. So to me, because like I understand, you know, you really shouldn't be mixing with like the dark shit. And I'm not saying like witchcraft is dark or Odin's dark, but like I'm not saying anything's dark. I'm just saying that it's you shouldn't be really necessarily just like mixing ham sandwiches and Judaism. It's not kosher. There you go. But chef, don't judge. I was once a teenager. I understand. So. It's now 1974, and Mr. and Mrs. Harvey Pound are active members in the local Christian community. Harvey's a 44-year-old menswear salesman who worked to build his own ministry, as well as served as deacon at Bethel Baptist Church, and Christian. Ra- he was also a Christian radio DJ and personality who had been speaking against the resurgence of Satanism and other occult practices. Okay, so, Anton LaVey's book, I believe, dropped approximately 1969, and it became an overnight sensation, and there became a fascination with his not his book and his practice so in his church so there's that so he had been fighting and speaking against this on top of all this harvey was also preparing to become a permanent pastor at a church in stevensville donna harvey's wife worked part-time at the local christian bookstore 
With the impending permanent pastorship in Stevensville, the Pounds put their home for sale and planned to relocate south of Missoula in the Bitterroot Valley. With the home being up for sale and the realtor in and out showing the home, it was left unlocked. When Donna arrived home at approximately 1.30 p.m., the home appeared to be empty as it should be. Her husband was at work. Her daughter Kathy was at school, and Karen, was her other daughter, was at work at the Christian bookstore. The theory is that Donna encountered Wayne in her home when she entered her bedroom. Wearing gloves, Wayne pointed Harvey's 20, uh, 22 caliber Luger at Donna, forcing her to the bed. <sighs> Dumpster juice. Like, do I even have to make the alert? Like, that's gonna suck anyway. I put it. So, he then ties Donna to the bedpost, cutting her clothes off from the waist down with a knife. After discovering that Donna was wearing a sanitary napkin, he tossed it onto the floor and raped her. After raping Donna in her bedroom, he untied her feet from the bedpost and instructed her to walk to her unfinished basement. After forcing her to get on her hands and knees in the semi-finished furnace room, Wayne tied Donna back up and taped her mouth shut before shooting her five times in the back of the head. After Donna's body slumped over, trigger alert, dumpster dude alert, like, all of the ickies. I'm so sorry, guys. Wayne inserted the 22 inside Donna's vagina and left it there to be found. Wayne then turned off the lights and exited the pound's home, like, through the yard. Shortly before 6 p.m., when Harvey Pounds arrived home from work, daughter Kathy and a friend were in the living room watching television. When Harvey asked where Donna was, Kathy said, you know, basically, like, I don't know, Dad, but, like, why are there ropes on all of the beds and the rug is messed up in there? There was a breeziness to how Kathy nonchalantly made the statement, almost as, like, an afterthought, is how I interpreted that interaction between father and daughter. She and her friend go back to watching their TV program. Harvey walks down the hall way of the home, looking into each of his daughter's rooms and the bathroom, seeing ropes fashioned oddly around the bedposts, toilet basin, and bathroom doorway. Kenny, Harvey and Donna's son, was away in the army, and he didn't check his son's room, although Kenny had been home on leave not long before his mother's murder. When Harvey walked into the master bedroom, he saw the setup with the ropes on his bed, a sanitary napkin on the floor, along with Donna's torn clothing, but most alarming, the holster of his twenty-two was on the bedpost and had been cut with a knife. Harvey instructed Kathy and her friend to go to her friend's home immediately. When he was certain the children were out of the home and on their way to the friend's home, Harvey continued to continued searching for Donna. When Harvey opened Kenny's door, oddly, his guitar, which had been hanging up, was laying on the bed. 
The last place for Harvey to search for Donna was the basement. At 5.59 p.m., Harvey Pounds made a frantic call to Missoula County Sheriff's Department to report having found his wife murdered in their basement. Although there was a surgical glove found at the scene of the crime and a witness having seen Wayne, or a male, in the Pounds' backyard shortly after the murder, the police department was under a lot of pressure already from the brutal slaying of earlier mentioned Siobhan McGinnis. Wayne, a friend of Kenny, who had been in the Pound's home when Kenny was home on leave, was questioned, but there was no evidence linking him to the murder. Around this same time, Wayne slinked out of town enlisting in the Navy. Wayne's enlistment between ni- was, was between 1974 and 1977. It hasn't been confirmed, but... Investigators later suspected that Wayne committed murders whilst he was active duty at various ports of call during his naval travels. Fast forward, and by my search on the Farmer's Almanac archives, you know, the weather in Missoula ranged between freezing temperatures to the mid-40s throughout the month of January 1980, and I believe this body was dumped like in December 1979 and it did not say when she was found so I just checked for they said like January 1980 they didn't say when in January so I just checked for the whole month just to see because they were saying that the body was badly decomposed which tells me that she had been there since like at least the previous month um but there was a fluctuation with the temperature and so it went above freezing below freezing above freezing below freezing up and down um, at that time. So at some point in January 1980, the the advanced decomposed remains of a teenage girl were found on a roadside near Missoula by railway workers. Clad in only a floral dress, the young woman had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. Unable to identify the young Jane Doe, she was given the moniker Betty Beavertail after the nearby Beavertail Hill State Park. It wasn't until February 1985 that the young girl was identified as 15-year-old Devonna Nelson, a runaway from Seattle, Washington. On April 3, 1980, Wayne's mother, Charlene, 44 years old, took her life when she died in a one-vehicle accident. That's all I'm going to say about that. In the summer of 1984, Wayne began dating, air quotes, a young woman who went by the alias Robin that he picked up at a truck stop. Robin's real name was Marcella Sherry Marcy Bachman, a 16-year-old runaway from Vancouver, Washington, who claimed to be from Texas. Throughout the summer, the two dated and were seen together all of the time. In September 1984, Wayne and Marcella left, leaving people to think that the couple were moving away to be wed and to start a family. It was December 24, 1984, when a wildlife photographer hiking through the woodland stumbled upon the shallow grave and advanced decomposed remains of Marcella. 
Unable to identify her remains, she was dubbed Debbie Deer Creek after the nearby drainage ditch. It wouldn't be until 2006 that Marcella would be properly identified through DNA. For many years, Marcella's brother, who with the help of investigators feared for years, you know, that his sister had been a victim of Gary Ridgway, the Greenway killer, but she was never tied to him. He never admitted to having her as a victim. On September 9th, 1985, in East Missoula, the skeletal remains of a petite woman between 4 foot 10 and 5 foot 2 and 90 to 110 pounds with dentistry commonly found among the Asian community at that time because of like screwing posts inside of the teeth. That's what she had going on. She was estimated to be between, this is a nice gap, 18 and 35, and the remains showed that she was shot two times with a 32 in the head. Unable to identify her remains, she was called Christy Clear Creek. It was estimated that she was murdered between 1983 and 1985. In 2021, through DNA, it was revealed that Christy Clear Creek was 23-year-old Janet L. Lucas from Spokane, Washington, who disappeared from Sandpoint, Idaho the summer of 1983 without a trace. In this case, just like that of Devon and Nelson, Wayne was never identified as the murderer only suspected. December 12, 1985, the Shook family of Ravelli County were spending their last moments of normal together. Michael, Teresa, and their children had just finished eating dinner when there was a loud and feverish banging at the front door. When they answered the door, Wayne, wielding a large knife, forced his way into the Shook home. Lunging immediately at Michael, he plunged the knife into Mr. Shook, repeatedly stabbing him to death. You already know what happened, so trigger, because this is his M.O. After murdering Michael Shook in front of his wife and children, he dragged Teresa into the master bedroom where she was raped and stabbed to death. There are conflicting articles that stated that the couple were stabbed or shot, so nonetheless, like, we said stabbed, I said stabbed, we're going with stabbed. In an attempt to conceal what he had done, Wayne then set the home ablaze. Fortunately, the Shook children were able to escape the fire unharmed. At this point, Wayne became employed at Wells Furniture Moving Company. His employers at the family-owned business were couple Doug and Chris Wells. While working for the Wellses, Wayne began to develop an unhealthy crush on Chris. On the evening of September 3, 1986, Doug noticed Wayne was creeping around his home. When Doug stepped outside to confront Wayne, Wayne said that what had happened was, while randomly driving by the Wells' home, he observed what to him appeared to be a burglar peeking through the windows. So, as a concerned citizen and loyal employee, he pulled over and investigated, but lo and behold, wonder of wonders, he must be on the other side of the home or gotten away. Wayne then asked Doug if he had a flashlight. 
When the two men entered the Wells' home, Doug was struck on the back of the head by Wayne. Wayne then tied Doug and Chris up separately. Doug was restrained in the couple's basement and stabbed in the chest by Wayne. After leaving Doug to die in the basement, Wayne went to the couple's bedroom where Chris was tied up and began raping her. Oh, so sorry. Although Doug had been badly wounded, adrenaline and his love for his woman, Chris, I assume kicked in like he was like, no, not today, motherfucker. Let me tell you what you're not going to do. Oh, no. We're going down kicking and screaming, motherfucker. So, Doug was able to free himself from his restraints and retrieved his shotgun. As he labored to the second floor bedroom where Wayne was raping Chris, you know, Wayne heard him because he was all like, Wheezy F, baby, because, like, I surmised there was, like, the potentiality of possibly, like, potentially, like, a sunken chest wound, like, almost. I don't know if the lung was punctured, but, like, you know what I mean? Like, he was labored going up to the second floor of the house, okay? Because he was down in the basement. Anywho... So, like, Wayne hears Doug, and so he, like, thank God, climbs up off of Chris and steps into the hallway, but he's wielding a gun, the same gun that he probably, like, clever-laned Doug up beside the head with when they entered the home. So, here's the thing, though. Doug, again, was wielding the shotgun. So, Doug was able to pop off two shots into Wayne. And Wayne was able to get one shot into Doug's leg before, like, falling and, you know, becoming unconscious. The Wellses and Wayne were rushed to the hospital. Both Chris and Doug were able to recover from their wounds. Wayne, on the other hand, died the following day on September 4th, 1986. It wasn't until the home invasion of the Wellses that similarities cropped up between the crime and the brutal murder of the Shooks. After Wayne's death and a search of his personal belongings, police were able to find evidence linking Wayne to the murder of Donna Pound, and there was also Marcella Bachman's hair, but, you know, like, she was there, like, over the summer with him, so that's really no surprise, unless it was, like, a clump of hair, like, a lock of, like, he, like, ripped it out of her head when they were fighting and he kept it. I don't know, it wasn't said, but, you know, there was some of her hair there, as well as items missing from the Shook home. Whew, so, what had happened is this. I say this a lot, and I sound like a broken record because it's been proven. Wayne displayed many, many of the textbook characteristics off the jump of a burgeoning serial killer at a young age. He did that. Um, When you're murdered... I. Let's give this a quick goog, because I don't even know when this book came out. Let's give this a quick... Let's give this a... Hold on a second. Let's see when this book came out. This book... Came 
does it even tell us? I don't even know. Um, if I keep scrolling. This book was published. They're saying this book was published in like 2016. So, okay. If the book was published in 2016. Alright. That's a word flex. Okay. And the author was able to go back and interview Elmer and Marge and get backstory on, you know, how Wayne was as a little boy. And they were able to recount the stories of sadism that he displayed, you know, eight years old. Breaking Julie's glasses on purpose. Looking her dead in the face. And knowing that she was going to get in trouble. Or bullying the neighborhood kids. Or however, whatever kind of aggressions he displayed when they were playing cowboys and Indians. You know what I mean? Like, there's things that, that, you know, that a child will display and you're just kind of like, huh, and you perk up. So, if five years ago, six years ago, I don't know when he did these interviews, but if he was able to conduct these interviews after Wayne was rightfully killed in 1986, um, okay. And they all knew then that he was, there was something off with him. And then you see how he tried to be, I guess, I guess the best way to put it would be as dark and menacing. I don't know that he believed in the things that he was pulling from. He very well could have, and I would never dispute anybody's beliefs, but you know, he may or may not have, but I believe that he really wanted to make himself appear to be bigger and darker and scarier than he very well might have been on the inside. But he was also a sick fucker. Also, that thing with the kittens. Come on now. Like, that's like 101. 101 were, you know, abusing animals, harming animals. To pick up, look into the box, see what they are, and know what you were doing because you opened the door and because you know that the incinerator is, you know, going. And then to toss that box in there. These were clear signs of a disturbed young man who, you know, was going to develop tastes that were going to become bigger than harming animals. And it's sad that, you know, he targeted his friend's mother, Donna Pounds. It's you know, sad that, I guess he was a trucker, it was kind of, it was really vague what it was that he did for a living, I'm pretty sure he was a trucker, um, and so that's how he was able to pick up these, these run, these young runaways, um, and, I mean, for instance, Marcella's brother presumed that she was a sex worker when she went missing, Um, and that's why he thought that the Green River Killer had gotten her. So, you know what I mean? Like, 
knowing that these girls had histories of being runaways and then being picked up at, like, truck stops and stuff like that, if he was a truck driver, yeah, it makes sense. And then they're all being dumped, basically, in his home rest area because that's his dumping ground. That's where he's most comfortable and where he knows the area best. So, back to the script... We know that he behaved differently from other children. There was a lot of sinister shit brewing within. He had his interests in the occult aside, because I'm never going to condemn him for those beliefs. You know, he did toss the kittens in the incinerator. Elmer and Marge Frame knew what type of evil lived within that little boy. I believe that Wayne did potentially have more victims that have yet to be properly identified that, you know, happened between 1974 and 1977, maybe 78, that we don't know of because he was abroad. Wherever he was, he was away. Okay, I don't know that he was abroad, but he was definitely away from Montana because he was in the Navy. So, wherever he was, there are probably some unsolved cases that could actually that date back to that time frame when he was in that area or those port of calls were because I feel like he had an appetite and the only reason why he joined the Navy was to get distance between himself and Donna Pounds's murder case also I believe he knew that they were going to try to pin Siobhan McGinnis's murder on him and that was a murder that he did not commit. So, with that, he, you know, I I believe that Wayne got exactly what he deserved, you know. He behaved like a rabid animal for over a decade. And subsequently, he was put down before he could finish what he started in the Wells' home. Simply put, Wayne fucked around and he found out that is the scientific method ladies and gentlemen um i mean what else is there really to say um it's super tragic again always it's always tragic when you have these oh man i really hate when you have these nomadic serial killers who pick up people from different states and then you know so much time gets lost in identifying the remains uh that is always so troublesome to me and I really hate when I mean but it goes the same way with like salesman trouble he was in the military when he was away and being in different areas, and being able to commit crimes there, and then finally being able to go back home to Montana, and nobody ever was going to figure out necessarily who did it, especially back then, when DNA really wasn't a thing, but as we've seen, even as of recently, as I even mentioned in our last episode, DNA is catching up with people, so don't even fucking try just don't even fucking try. Like, fuck it all, though. Why even bother? You're gonna get caught. I say this every time. Your great-great-nieces, boyfriends, uncles, cousins, nephews, whoever is gonna do a swab for 23andMe. And next thing you know, 
a 72-year-old unsolved murder is going to be solved through DNA because somebody saved a scrap or a piece of clothing and it was preserved and then the DNA was put into the system and finally a match was made. That's essentially, you know, DNA is how Siobhan McGinnis's killer was found and he was already dead. But, you know, so, we we see this all the time. So, that's it. I hear in Montana, you fuck around, you find out. Home invasion is really not wise because everybody's got themselves armed up as they should be in their homes. Because, I mean, it's like one of the least populated states. Your neighbors are few far in between. You've got your acreages to look after in your homestead and stuff you need it for protection not just against the people but the critters so yeah okay so happy beginning of december kimberly this is what had happened i'm gonna hit you with some beautiful outro music um new episode with like uh, let's just shoot for like give me like a week or so a little more than a week I've got a couple of ideas for what I want to work on and haven't quite figured out which the next episode is going to be anyway, give me like a week maybe a week and a half alright have a great weekend hope you enjoy the episode and cue the outro music <laughs> <laughs>